There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this festive end of year edition of the CapEx podcast. 2022 has been, by anyone's uh, gauge, a pretty eventful one. Um, we've got plenty to discuss here, and to do so, we welcome an all-star cast of panellists. As always, my deputy, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Welcome Hello. to the podcast. Merry Christmas. And uh, Merry Christmas to you, too. Uh, from the Institute of Economic Affairs, their Director of Communications, or Head of Communications, Director. Annabelle Denham. Annabelle, welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Pleasure. You braved a festive train nightmare, so I'm very grateful for you to be here. Um, in fact, the week we were recording has basically been people slipping around on ice and blaming the RMT for their transport travails. Uh, and completing our quartet uh, from Conservative Home, their assistant editor, William Atkinson, making a return to the podcast after a few months hiatus. William, welcome. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you for having me on and uh, happy Winter Festival. Thank you. Yes. Happy Winterval to all of our, all of our readers. Uh, listeners, Christ alive. Uh, <laughs> right, we are going to divide our end of year uh, roundup into several categories, and each of our panelists have chosen their hero of the year, their villain of the year, their politician of the year, who may also be heroic or villainous, uh, their policy of the year, which lets us really out our inner nerd. So you'll probably hear some quite obscure ones there. And finally, as I always like to end things on an optimistic note, our reason to be cheerful heading into 2023. Um, now, I have had advanced sight of the answers, and there are some really some interesting and perhaps counterintuitive answers uh, to some of our categories. I can see William smiling there. Um, we shall see why in, in due course. Right, let's kick off. Alice, your hero of the year. Well, I think it's undisputably got to be Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who very sadly... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Passed away after um, decades of dignified service to this country. Um, and I think she is a, a real paragon of, of leadership and she'll be sadly missed. Any, anyone not like the Queen? It's <laughs> <laughs> a real source of debate here in Catholic yeah, yeah. Towers. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I do feel as though you put extra emphasis on the word dignified there, Alice, in contrast perhaps to other royal members, uh, members of the royal family and yes. their performances. I mean, yeah. absolutely what an example of, um, of sort of quiet, um, yeah, dignity, she is. <laughs> I actually, yeah, I've been a complete Harry and Meghan free zone. I haven't watched the documentary. I haven't read anything about the documentary. Um, and... Yeah, I, is there anything worth watching in it? Does anyone know? Oh Has anyone actually watched it? I, I would, I would refuse to watch it as a, as a matter of principle. The same way I've given up on the crown. Um, I'm hoping this also gives me the credibility to eventually write ranty articles about how it's um, sort of denigrating our national history. But nevertheless, no, I haven't seen either. I was desperate to resist, but I couldn't. I'm afraid I'm one of the people who has added to Netflix's numbers of people who have watched uh, the Harry and Meghan documentary. Is Part it, one. Is there are two like volumes, dramatically. In a kind of very broad sense. It's the most like compellingly tedious thing I've ever seen. Like These two people are so self-absorbed and dull. I mean, they tell you details about... Oh, you've seen it? Yeah, okay, I've seen all right. it. Oh, right. <laughs> you say things like... Oh, we all wore animal onesies at my wedding shower, and you just think this is the most basic. Like it's, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's it's fascinating to see. And obviously, 
I think also the kind of the, the history of, of Prince Harry's trauma, obviously at the death of his mother and having to go through that grief so publicly is so raw. I think that's the thing about it that's quite interesting. Okay. But yeah, it focuses way too much on Meghan and her backstory and not enough on Harry. I know, John, I can see it's itching to move on (laughs) from the top of Harry and Meghan. I'm just conscious that we've got a lot of categories and there's so much appropriate to dish out. (laughs) I don't want to waste it all on Harry and Meghan. Uh, Annabelle, your hero of the year. My hero of the year is J.K. Rowling, and I don't tend to get involved in the culture wars stuff, aside from an article I once wrote for CapEx, which I would urge listeners to read about uh, the tiger who came to tea, um, that much-loved novel, um, children's novel. But J.K. Rowling, another children's author who has made a massive contribution to literature and really added to the magic of learning to read for many kids, um, but not actually commending her for that uh, today, but rather what she has done for um, feminism, what she has done to ensure that there are safe female-only spaces, uh, particularly in Edinburgh, where the existing uh, soul, I believe, rape centre is actually run by a transgender woman. So I think that she's one of a few voices, somebody who has come under a lot of fire, faced a lot of vitriol and really become a hate figure for trans activists, but she's pressing ahead uh, again, showing uh, conviction and, and offering you know another side to the debate, which I think is often too quiet. Okay, so J.K. Rowling, uh, William, I had to be very boring and simply go for Rishi Sunak. Um, obviously, that in my so boring. I know, <laughs> I know, but but it's his boringness actually was is why I have to go for him because after a year of continual political calamity. Um, and a year of three prime ministers, what, uh, three or four home secretaries. Five four, chancellors. Yeah, yeah, Partridge in a pear tree and all the rest. Um, <laughs> it's all got rather confusing. And fortunately, over the last month, um, since Richard Sunak's basically taken over, he's managed to reduce the political temperature entirely, um, which after, I think I was being driven half mad by having to do various live blogs of which MPs were backing who and who's resigning right now kind of thing, um, has made my life so much easier. Okay. Um, and on a, that's on my personal level. Um, but more broadly, um, since I've, I've been at Come Home, um, I've been our nominal economics correspondent. Um, and I think Rishi Sunak saw before any sort of other leading politician or commentator did um, the threat of inflation in about, I think, spring last year um, and the impact it would have on the public finances. Um, and his warnings um, on how volatile the situation were uh, were ultimately proven correct uh, by the... Uh, Farago of trustonomics. Um, And so from a conservative perspective, I'm quite happy now that um, all of that uh, has has calmed down. And we have a prime minister whom I'm I'm optimistic will will do quite a good job in the role. Well, you say that, but then there have been some kind of unforced errors early on. So, I mean, some of his cabinet appointments perhaps have not been so wise, Gavin Williamson being the obvious one. Um, and then there's all these rumours about Dominic Raab, which I guess we couldn't, shouldn't really go into. But I mean, some of his cabinet choices, given that he had the task there to kind of unite the party, have not necessarily been... And so you've got the, you have the COP27, is mm, he going, isn't out. he going? And that made him look like somebody who would bow to I pressure too readily. I think compared to what came before to him, be fair, though, yeah. this is like... Pretty, pretty minor stuff. Also, like, from what I've heard about the um, the COP27 thing, that wasn't actually his fault. That was a flustered civil servant <laughs> briefing out a line of which the you know, CNAC hadn't actually been asked on it and annoyed and t- always intended to go. Um, and so it unfortunately created the impression that he'd been he'd been bounced by activists. It was U-turning. Yeah. Comms is everything. Here, um, <laughs> here. Annabelle nodding along. Yeah. Um, I think my two cents on CNAC is, I think you're right, um, he's clearly got some quite big kind of big picture judgment stuff right um i find that he he definitely is a bit more kind of treasury orthodox than my own swivel-eyed ideological (laughs) approach to things would be but then again i think it's been a difficult time for the swivel-eyed community and we all need to take stock after the last few months and um yeah i think how to think about things okay so now we come to my own uh hero of the year and i've chosen probably a name you most of you haven't heard of not household name here um, Valery Zeluzhny, he is the guy who masterminded the Ukrainian resistance-based military uh, resistance. He's the head of the Ukrainian armed forces. Obviously, Volodymyr Zelensky is going to get most of the plaudits for the bravery and, you know, insanely good PR job he's done as well. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, he has used his skills as a performer, 
as effectively as anyone you've ever seen. But in terms of the actual like raw military resistance, um, so Lushni and his team of commanders have clearly done something absolutely extraordinary. We kind of take it as for granted now that we're in this kind of slightly stalemate position, but back in February, everyone thought the thing would be over in a week. And the fact that they're not, they're not A, not haven't lost, but B, conceivably win, is, is pretty remarkable. Um, so yeah, I think he deserves probably more of a profile, not that Zelensky deserves less necessarily, but I think, yeah, the actual military guys who've um, put together that strategy, pretty, pretty heroic. Right. No, no dissent here. No, <laughs> any Putin fans on the uh, on the pod? Right. I tell you what does wind me up a bit is um, all these people like Ben Stiller going to to Kiev to it's shake weird, hands yeah. with Zelensky. The way that kind of a selfie with Zelensky has become the ultimate status symbol. Yeah, there is. I I only vaguely remembered that now that until you mentioned it. I was like, why is this happening? <laughs> Zelensky's like, thank God, Ben Stiller. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, the whole thing had a slight like air of yeah, not just him but like politicians as well. Yeah. Just like get yourself to Kiev. Yeah, yeah. Boris the, the did it first, and that was you know that was quite a trailblazer. And now it's now it's hackneyed. I think it's one of the things where he unequivocally got it pretty much bang on, and he can kind of he will hang his hat on it. And I would yeah. if I were him. But that Wallace will be his legacy, well. not Partygate. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, well, we may come on to this as politicians, but um, Ben Wallace probably one who can probably hang his head highest, hold his head highest, because he wanted to send them arms even before the war. He saw what was happening. He was like, there's going to be a war. In a way, when loads of other people were saying, no, no, it's all a bluff. Um, you know, this is classic Putin. He's trolling. Um and he didn't, and he took it seriously. So yeah, he can be one of my sort of sub-heroes of the year. Anyway, moving briskly on, because we have plenty of people to get through. Alice, villain of the year? My villain of the year is the Anti-Growth Coalition. These were the people who Liz Truss was saying were standing in the way of growth, um, and she described them as vested interests dressed up as think tanks. They prefer talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. And I think she's talking about us. Um, we've got a podcast. I have been known to take a taxi. I do live in North London. I feel I'm bang to rights. You're ticking a lot of boxes there. <laughs> I am. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's, it's so cool. It's got a lot of kind of flack, the Anti-Growth Coalition, because I think she picked some of the wrong people. Um, but the actual idea of there being groups of people who are very, very uninterested actively opposed to growth is, is in my view, spot on. Absolutely. Who do you think they actually are? Well, I think the trouble is that a lot of them are in the Conservative Party. Um, yeah, William's know. nodding along like, mm. my readers. I mean, nowhere, <laughs> nowhere is, does this play out more clearly than in when it comes to housing. You know, we, we see Tory MPs, you know, out with their placards opposing any development mm. anywhere, even though they know that it forces young people out of their areas. They know that, you know, that this is a terrible crisis and at the root of so many of our problems and yet you know the, the vested interests in their own constituencies um stand in the way so mm. yeah i think the the real the real we will we coalition. will return to this topic <laughs> to the, the nimbies yes and definitely. those who We're capitulate always, to them basically the capex podcast is always just a long route back to <laughs> <of> nimbies <laughs> at some point um Annabelle, your villain of the year. It's it's going to be a quick one. It's Harry and Meghan. They're <laughs> oh, my villains. Okay. Harry yeah. and Meghan. Fine. I'll nod. I'm happy with that. Uh, William? Um, my villain of the year is uh, Christian Wakeford, the uh, <laughs> former Tory MP mm. and for Barry who convert, um, converted, um, defected <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, to Labour. <laughs> <laughs> was that in that, 2022? That was. Um, it was uh, in... It's been a long it was year. Spring, right? it, was, it was, no, it was actually in January because it was the same day in which I interviewed for Con Home next door, I think, here in Tufton Street. Um, and the reason why... Um, Christian Wakeford is my villain of the year. Um, it's not only because he's shown the zeal of a convert, perhaps, in uh, slanging off the Tory party now um, as fulsomely as he did when he was actually a Conservative MP, um, though not perhaps using um, as uh, terrible language as he was reported to have done, um, but also because his decision to defect basically created a rally around the flag um, effect amongst Tory MPs, um, which meant that they didn't move against Boris Johnson for about five or six more months. Um, and... Whether you're a Boris supporter um, or not, and I think he has many great virtues, expostulated by many of 
um, my colleagues in their, their excellent new books and other <laughs> similar things. Um, it, it meant that a matter that needed to come to a head um, did not come to a head um, for much longer um, and meant that the uh, wounds um, and the various uh, arguments going on in the party just festered and became greater um, and greater. Um, and so inadvertently, Christian Wakeford's uh, greatest contribution, um, perhaps to his new party, was making sure that his old one had a few more months of hell ahead of it. I think you're absolutely right about the kind of festering wounds. And I, st- I think we're seeing that now, that the party is, even you know, with an 80-seat majority, is so difficult to govern. We've seen that with these... Um, is it 80 seats now, though? There have been so many by-elections mm-hmm. and... Uh... I think it's around, what, 70. 65, 70? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're seeing backbenchers force amendments, force bills to be withdrawn. You know, yeah. there's huge numbers of kind of disgruntled ex-ministers on the backbenches. Um, yeah, the party is in a mess, even rallying around Rishi Sunak, and even though he's kind of calmed things down. I think he's given the patina of orderliness, but yeah, I, he's got a completely thankless task. Well, I think, yes, yeah, so I think that what I mentioned earlier about him sort of lowering the... Um, political temperature um, is crucial because it, it takes a lot of the wind out of these various arguments and allows the government to have some form of direction that Tory MPs can get around. But yes, I mean, as, as we'll come on to later, there have been several rebellions recently. I mean, one at the moment um, about um, Albanian migrants, but also recently about uh, NIMBYism and then also about wind farms, um, which Sunak has been forced to um, back down upon. And I think, as you were saying earlier, with the appointment of people like Gavin Williamson to the cabinet, his efforts to try and balance out a, a party where I think at least 60% now of MPs have been ministers of some form or another. Um, and also in a, in a changing political climate. So I think we are all Lib Dems now and the MPs seen them primarily, seen themselves primarily as, <laughs> as uh, constituency warriors um, rather yeah. than necessarily um, lobby fodder. So in that, in that case, he has a very difficult task of, of managing um, a very difficult party. But as I say, perhaps Christian Wakeford's uh, defection brought him one fewer person that he had to worry about. Yep. Um, I've gone for an incredibly obvious one, which is Vladimir Putin, because um, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but he actually launched a war, um, which was very bad. Um, yeah, I don't think... He would probably, to be honest, I'm, I'm as regular listeners know, I'm a bit of a Russophile, did Russian at university... I'd probably have picked Putin for most years between about 2001 and now. So, um, so yeah. rewind job to ja- extra villainy levels. Though, rewind to January. Were mm-hmm. you one of the very few people who thought he would actually send tanks no, across the border? I was completely gulled. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was sort of strategizing and trying to get concessions out, and then there might be a maybe a bit more incursion in the east. To be honest, yeah, I was completely wrong about, but. I did always maintain that the Russian military was pretty crap, though, and that they look might look good on paper, but they're like... Because they have a long history of kind of, of abusing their own troops and hazing and stuff like that, and they had started to sort some of that out. But anyone who spent any time there knows how incredibly corrupt everything is. So it didn't... When these stories started coming out about them having the wrong equipment, about people defecting, about the total kind of disorderliness of it. None of it was all particularly surprising. This was never going to be a well-oiled machine going in, even if they had vastly superior technology and manpower. Um, I mean, a lot of that is also true of Ukraine. I mean, it was a corrupt country. We shouldn't act like this is some beacon of democracy that's always been perfect. It hasn't. No Ukrainian would claim it. It has been. But... um, it's one of those rare moments in kind of world affairs where it does feel like a kind of pretty black versus white conflict, of kind of liberty versus oppression. Um, but no, I was, yeah, I was completely, I was in the, um, I didn't, I couldn't believe it. Maybe it was part of this thing of not wanting to believe it could happen. Mm. But on, on the day it actually started, I was just like, yeah, it was a sense of, a sense of disbelief I hadn't felt probably at any other point. Well, I think what I find quite interesting is, you know, this, this, Russian spectre has been haunting the um, imaginations of, of Central and Eastern and Western Europe um, for decades, especially since the, the Second World War or the Cold War. And now it's been um, rather proven that its, uh, its bark is worse than its bite. Um, but nevertheless, you know, a country um, that spans almost the totality of Eurasia um, with 11 different time zones is never going to disappear at, at, at any time soon. And I think what, what's interesting now is that I think we've we've kind of dialed down the rhetoric around calling for regime change and that sort of thing, but working out how we bring an end to this conflict and then yeah. eventually deal with a sort of post-war 
and then ultimately post-Putin Russia is going to be, I think, a, a crucial part of European ge- geopolitics. Yeah, I think the biggest, um, sorry, I hate this word, don't the biggest cope uh, about Russia is that Putin would somehow be deposed and then it'll go seamlessly into some sort of democratic transition. Like democracy has no, uh, as a concept or as a way of running a country, has very little traction in Russia. It's had nine years, ten years of democracy, more or less worthy of the name, before Putin became president and then set about very quickly removing most of the things that made it vaguely democratic. But most of those nine or ten years, he's done an amazing job of making everyone in Russia think that democracy is synonymous with total economic chaos and so on. Um, And actually there were some good things going on in the 90s. Obviously it was very hard, but that was because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm a great fan of of calling for the restoration of long since deposed European royal families. So I think that there's a current dispute between a potential Tsar and a potential Tsarina. Um, but clearly, Russia's been going downhill since at least 1917. So, uh, so were you in favour of the attempted coup in Germany a couple of weeks ago? Then? <laughs> no, because they weren't actually. I don't think they were actually supported by the the uh, legitimate household. Um, so right. they they were they were they were themselves oh, usurpers. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Some minor noble. <laughs> yeah, not quite cut it. On your sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that took a that took a weird swerve. Um, anyway, now I I should uh, sort of. Uh, apologise slightly in advance here because our next category is politician of the year so there may be some overlap with heroes and villains but we shall crack on Alice well, politician of the year I couldn't choose a Tory um, so I've gone for Wes Streeting I think it's really refreshing where he's using his own personal experience of having been treated for kidney cancer and he's been left now I think in, in limbo waiting for some scan results to start talking about NHS reform and particularly from the point of view of patients, too often it's patients who are getting a bad deal here. And I think these, you know, we often, the conversation around the NHS is about, you know, how wonderful doctors and nurses are and what a sacred institution it is. And I feel like the patient experience, which is usually dreadful, is left out. And I feel like it's really great to hear this, especially from a Labour politician, um, to actually be talking kind of in sensible terms about how the NHS needs to change. Um, and since... I think we're fairly likely to be having a Labour government soon. Um, it's good to hear that, that they're thinking about this. I mean, I think we're a long way from proper reform of the NHS, the root and branch reform that the institution um, needs. But it really does say something that this is coming from the Labour Party. And, it's, you know, no Tory MP really is willing to stick their neck above no. the parapet and talk about the failings of the NHS. They're much more interested in uh, underscoring how well it performs on areas like diversity and administration. And like you say, Alice, if you're a patient, then those sorts of things mean very little uh, when compared to the importance of surviving, mm. say, cancer or yeah, I think, I think there's two things. One is the quite obvious Nixon to China element of Labour the only ones who can actually reform the NHS because they have enough trust on it as an issue. Um, but two is that the, the NHS at the moment, you try and get an appointment or test results, and it just doesn't work in any meaningful sense. So I think that the public appetite for reform actually might, there may be a moment in a year or two where actually you could say we're going to do some fairly root and branch stuff because we have no alternative and people will say yeah right we know you're doing this because you want it to be better i mean i don't like the fact that only labor are trusted on the health service but it is a kind of fact of british political life um however much the tories have worked hard to sort of nullify it in working hard to nullify it they've been really resistant to any proper reform wasn't didn't cameron say get essentially elected and he said that you know three initials are nhs Mm. Well, I think well, also, Tory back in 2010. yeah, one interesting thing, though, in, in recent years is that there was a point, um, especially sort of post-Corbyn, where the Tories had drawn level, according to polls, and then overtaken Labour as the party most trusted with the NHS. And that basically required the electoral shift um, in terms of who was voting for who um, that, that Brexit brought in that was eventually realised in the 2019 um, general election. But I think the, the, the problem with that was that the Tories always saw at least the people who'd actually thought about it at the Tory party saw this as a multi-term project. So you gain the public's confidence um, uh, in, you hold a, in you handling the NHS by sort of ploughing its mouth with gold. Um, and then you move into the reform um, in the second term. But alas, because the Tories have self-destructed in one form or another so far this year, they've, they've rather wasted that opportunity. And I think as, as John says, it took um, 
Jim Callaghan to say you can't spend your way out of a recession. It'll probably take a, a Labour government to say the NHS cannot continue in the form in which it currently is. Mm. And I think what particularly gives me hope is specifically where Streeting talking about the BMA and describing them as a vested interest. We know the Labour Party gets a lot of money from these guys, um, but he's prepared to stand up to them. And, and also I think that the public seem to think that medical unions in particular are just like a, a lovely, cuddly bunch. The BMA are street fighters in white coats. Um, and I think it's good to see the, a Labour politician who recognises that. I don't think we should be too optimistic. I'm sorry to be <laughs> yeah, a doubtner, no, but no, you know, some of the noises we've heard from Labour about integrating yeah. social yeah. care and uh, the NHS are quite alarming. So let's yeah, let's see what happens. Let's see. So Annabelle, your politician of the year. Well, uh, my politician. I was going to set a cat amongst the patrons and say Liz Truss, but I was beaten to it. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say Ron DeSantis, and I could also have said actually Joe Biden, who delivered the best midterm. Election results, I think, since 2002, that those were skewed by, for of an course, nine. President. Yeah, for yeah. an incumbent president, but those, of course, were skewed by uh, 9-11. Um, DeSantis had a very strong performance uh, in the US midterm elections in November, particularly in counties that had previously voted Democrat, like Miami-Dade. Um, he seems to be on course to... Uh, replace Trump. And you could argue, much as people have with Keir Starmer, that he's not Donald Trump, uh, just as Keir Starmer is not Jeremy Corbyn, and that's a reason to get uh, behind him. But I think he's made some good noises on uh, the culture wars front. And of course, he was much more pro-freedom during the coronavirus pandemic than uh, many other state governors. Um, The Florida did have the 14th highest uh, death toll um, in the US, but of course you're not comparing like with like, and it had a a lower death toll than other states that locked down harder and for longer. So um, there's there's something to be said for that, though of course the, the picture and the data are mixed. He's also taken the fight to Disney, hasn't he? He's sort of revoked their special state. Sorry, he's also taken the fight to, to Disney, hasn't he? He's revoked their special status um, and things like that after they got into a fight with him over his um, what's it it's called a it, don't say gay bill or whatever. Um, but that's not that's that's what his opponents call it. Um, it's actually a relatively reasonable piece of legislation. But you know, I just I just love the idea of a governor who's willing to take the fight to the House of Mouse. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay. Uh, I don't have much to say about Ron DeSantis except that I didn't like his the stunt of like sending um, migrants to Martha's Vineyard or whatever. Well, that was a pretty like pretty morally rank thing to do. Mm. Whatever your opinion on border control, you shouldn't use people as props. To make clear, like I'm that. not Ron DeSantis's number no, no, one fan. No, no, I just it are. seems he most that he's had a good. He's definitely had the most... I mean, I look at American politics as just kind of massive clown show, to be honest, Um, including the current president who can barely string a sentence together. There we go. Anyway, my sophisticated thoughts on US politics aside, Will, politician of the year? Um, My politician of the year had to be uh, Grant Shapps, um, the current... Come on. The current business... uh, (laughs) The current business secretary, but formerly the the transport secretary, and and for about four days, a Tory leadership candidate. Um, How long was he transport secretary? No, he was home secretary for about... Oh, yes, he was also home secretary, yeah, Yeah. for for six days. So he's had a very busy... He's a lot of jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a very busy man, a very important man. Um, So I remember in my... um, in my interview for Gone Home next door, um, back in January, I was asked who the transport secretary was, and I was able to instantly say... Grant Shapps, because um, I once um, went out with a, a very left-wing Belgian um, who lived in Welland Hatfield in his constituency, and she had cultivated a great loathing of Grant Shapps. So I always kept a, um, a lookout for him after that, um, especially as, as we apparently grew up in the same place, Crossy Green. Um, and so I think Grant Shapps um, has quietly turned, him into, he turned himself into an essential cabinet minister as transport secretary. Um, he not only presided over the COVID pandemic and the impact that has um, on our railways and transport networks, um, but he also made a name for himself in making kooky videos that went out on Twitter and YouTube, including people like Michael Portillo um, and somebody from TikTok. That was good, yeah. actually. Yeah, that yeah. That's really good. And, and also various things where he was sort of dressing up and holding a crab and advertising train tickets. Yeah. And I remember writing an article saying, this is exactly what ministers should be doing. You can make yourself... Holding li- crabs. Yes, exactly. If you more can- crabs in, minis- in ministerial office. More, more the idea that if you can make yourself 
look like a prat in order to make sure people get a handle on it, an important policy. I think that that's that's the only worthwhile thing really cabinet ministers seem to have been able okay. to do this year. Um, but now now his you know, time as Home Secretary, or six days of it, um, and now as Business Secretary, um, he's got used to holding um, very large briefs. And I'm, I'm impressed by anybody who can manage to reinvent himself as a political survivor, as Schatz has. Well, he's also had several identities himself, hasn't he? Yes, was it Michael Green? <laughs> yeah. He was, he wants to see what it's like in terms of the scene of him. But I think a, a testament to his quality was that um, Liz Truss sacked him reportedly with the words... Um, Sorry, Grant, you're you're very good at your job, um, but you just didn't vote for me. So right. you know, clearly, clearly, even those who don't want him in their cabinet can can recognise his obvious talents. Do um, you think he should have been reappointed to transport rather than moved over to Bays? Um, it's an interesting question. I thought he would be reappointed to transport, but I think his brief time as uh, Home Secretary and also the fact that he was quite an essential behind-the-scenes person for Rishi Sunak's campaign meant that um, he probably wanted um, and probably deserved because he is actually quite a competent minister um, a bigger portfolio and obviously with the current ongoing energy issues uh, business is, is quite the place to be. Sure I suppose my point is more that we move we have reshuffles too often and if you've got somebody who like you, Will, um, is, has got their feet under the desk, um, or so you think, Will, um, has got their feet under the desk and is doing a good job. Do you know something um, we don't? <laughs> no, well, so just an announcement shortly. Um, and has got their feet under the desk and it seems to um, have learnt the ropes and be managing the department well. I'm not sure it's in the best interests of the country to promote them um, as a, some sort of reward uh, for loyalty. And that's how you end up in a situation where you've got over half a dozen education secretaries um, over a six-year period. Yeah, I, I think uh, turnover in both the civil service and ministers is one of the great problems we have. Um, it would be far better if people stayed in post far longer. Um, right, speeding along, still plenty to get to. Uh, my, I Continuing my theme of incredibly obvious choices, my polit- politician of the year, uh, as Annabelle did give away earlier, is Liz Truss. Um, just because she's now the answer to her own pub quiz question, um, it was I'm obviously pretty disappointed because you know a lot of the stuff that she proposed was very capexy, lots of deregulation and tax cuts and all the kind of stuff we like in this building. But I think we can all agree it was delivered without the necessary uh, political art or subtlety that might have been required. I don't think we've got any real dissent on that. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe we have some trust true believers here. Um, I'm kind of interested in what she goes on to do next. There are sort of rumours of think tankery of going across the United States. She's not even, she's not particularly old at all. She's only about 47 or something. So I, I suggest we probably haven't heard the last of her. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I think Liz Truss is kind of discredited <laughs> the whole concept of growth. Um, right, yeah. With her, with her, We've had enough of the economy. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I think precisely because she did the politics so badly, I think, you know, here at the CPS, we liked a lot of the policies in her mini budget. It was the sequencing. It was the lack of preparing people. It was, you know, rabbits out of hats. It was the actual politics of it that were... Yeah, and the sense of uh, people just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing Mm. what stick, which is not good if you're an investor and you want a bit of, you know, Britain's basically a byword for quite kind of conservative macroeconomics and stability and all those good things. Um, Anyway, we've done our politicians of the year. We're now going to segue to policies of the year. Um, I think we've got quite a random and varied selection here. So... Alice, I'll let you kick off. Well, my policies, there's everyone's favourite, the Product Security and Telecoms Infrastructure Bill, the Social Security Special Rules for End of Life Bill, and the Identity and Language Northern Ireland Bill. I'm sure everybody Classic. has heard of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, these are the only three bills that were included in the Queen's speech that have made it to royal assent, and I think it's just a testimony to how little this government Out of has... how many? 38? 38. Wow. Uh, three have so far achieved royal assent, and I think it's just... Uh, and God knows what any of these do, frankly. Um, and I think it's just a sign of how poor this government has been on delivery and actually getting anything done. You know, we understandably had two years of pandemic, but what else has this government got to show for itself? Yes, although I do think that politicians and governments are too eager to just introduce new legislation. Let's just get a bill through Parliament yeah. and get royal assent and um, do this as quickly as possible because that's how we're going to measure our success. And too little thought is really given to yeah. the ways in which we're just piling on red tape on businesses, for instance. Um, and it might sound in the short term like a feel-good policy, but you know, added together all of these things and mm. making uh, limiting the room for manoeuvre for mm. ordinary men and women and companies. So fewer policies done better. Fewer, yes. I think we can all agree with that. Which is your policy of the year, Annabelle, for good or bad? Well, mine was the delay to the junk food advertising ban. And this was announced very recently, just in time for Christmas. So we can all indulge and not have to worry that companies won't be able to peddle their wares um, because the government seems to think... Good well, exactly. Yeah. Could you imagine if you didn't have the um, feel-good sort of Coca-Cola music on in the background as the, the red rest. lorries um, yeah. make their way through the snow in the advert with Chris, Father Christmas on the side? Um, no, despite there being uh, very little evidence to support the idea that uh, advertising increases the number of calories uh, that we consume, or well, advertising for unhealthy foods increases the number of calories that we consume and is therefore adding to our obesity crisis, uh, the government did seem dead set on pushing ahead with uh, its anti-obesity strategy, of which this was one plank. Um, so I welcome it being delayed. And actually, if you look at nanny state policies over the course of 2022, um, this is one small positive that nothing's really changed. And usually when you look at uh, the state of uh, the nanny state, um, it's gotten worse. So that's that's to be welcomed and enjoy your turkey and pigs in blankets and bread sauce this Christmas, listeners. Mm. Uh, I agree with you entirely on, on both these points, Annabelle, but I will just have to complain that I've now got the holidays are, are coming. What's it? The Coca-Cola advert music stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Oh, me too. Huh? So, William, what's your policy of um, Well, so it's it's Simon Clark's uh, amendments, recent amendments to the uh, levelling up bill. I told you this was going to get nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> to remove the um, the ban on new wind farms, um, or what, onshore wind, I should say, um, in uh, in England. Um, and um, essentially, I, I support this not only because it is a blow into the eye for the anti-growth coalition, um, but because um, after I think Simon Clark had, had been very kind about a couple of pieces that we'd written, so um, we thought, well, this is a very good policy anyway, um, so we should write something um, to support it. And unfortunately, that gave it even more traction, and then we yeah. inadvertently helped contribute to a rebellion against the government. Um, but the politics aside, I think in a basic sense, the energy crisis that we've all endured um, for the last few months um, has shown how much we need to prioritise building up our own um, domestic energy supply. And as much as I may personally find um, wind farms sort of rather ugly plots on the landscape, um, it's clear that if we're not going to do things like fracking, if we're not going to be building any new, new nuclear power stations anytime soon, it rather has to be all hands to the pump in the things that we can actually do yeah. um, in order to build up our own supply. Of course, the total Panglossians will look at the uh, nuclear fusion experiment and think, ha although the, the closer you look at it, the more you realise we're still about 100 years away from that being a, a viable energy source. Um, okay, uh, 
Right, we'll come to mine. For once, it's not really obvious one. Um, but I've chosen a policy I absolutely hated. Um, and it's again, it's an amendment. And this was um, a few weeks ago when a bunch of Tory backbenchers led by Theresa Villiers tried to push through an amendment to um, ban or basically scrap house building targets so councils wouldn't have to build a certain number of homes. Now, starting from first principles, you can see why a kind of liberal, libertarian-ish person would be against centrally mandated targets because, you know, it's Whitehall telling people what to do in the local area. But... You have to set that in the context of our otherwise totally dysfunctional planning system. And it's basically been the only thing that's held people's feet to the fire and got any significant number of houses built during that time. So short of overhauling the system entirely, which is what I would love, get rid of the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act. The worst yeah, piece yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. The worst piece of legislation ever passed in this, in this country. Um, but if we're not going to do that, which... Let's be honest, we're probably not. Then I think targets are the least bad option. But the reason I chose this policy is it just so perfectly encapsulates the tendency that Alice spoke about earlier, the kind of ultra-nimbious Tory backbencher, particularly in home counties and anywhere kind of fringing London. Theresa Villiers' own constituency, Chipping Barnet, is the classic example. In her seat, they blocked new homes in a car park by a tube station. If you were thinking of somewhere to put new homes in and around London, mm. that would probably be like number one on my list. People are going, well, we have to block. I, th- I can't remember. I think it was some huge number, like 800 homes or something, because there'd be a bit less car parking space. It's like it's next to a tube station. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. Um, and it seems, from what I can tell, that the government is basically kind of going to meet them halfway and back down a bit on various targets. Um, we'll have to kind of see what comes out of the wash. See how Michael Gove can do. I think he's slightly caught between two horses here. Wait, the, what, a watering yeah. down of housing policy. Who knew? No, no, yeah. Never seen that before. Yeah, never. What's exactly. quite interesting though on this is that I, I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago and it's, it's quite fascinating, the broader story from 2010, because house building actually dropped off quite precipitously, <laughs> especially after 2008, but more broadly under, under Labour. Um, how the Tories managed to get house building actually up to a 30-year high, despite the evils of the 1947 Country Planning Act, but how nobody's really noticed. And I think the central question in that is that affordability hasn't changed, despite the fact that we're, you know, we're now on our way to a 300,000 year target that nominally is what, what is required um, per year. And I think it shows that unless there's a big change in the mortgage market, um, whether the huge in, inflating of demand that we've especially seen over the last 20 years, can, if that can ever be brought down with anything other than you know 10% interest rates, um, or otherwise we are going to have to do humongous sort of planning uh, planning reform and build 600,000 a year rather yeah. than 300,000 because nothing's going to change well, with people like me to buy a house. What understand in this debate is that we're already way behind. So it's not like you build a certain number and then suddenly prices are going to drop because we're talking about decades of uh, underbuilding. And you have all sorts of red herrings. You know, you have these kind of comforting myths that Henry Hill wrote about on Con Home yesterday about land banking being mm. being the cause of the thing rather than a symptom. Or if you're left wing, the problem is right to buy and the fact that we don't have enough social housing. It's just not really true. We have quite a large social housing stock compared to a lot of more affordable Western um, European countries. Uh, you know, there's all these sorts. Or there's the Ian Mulhern interest rate school, which makes, I mean, bafflingly little sense to me because prices are different in different parts of the country that have the same interest rates so but, i don't know maybe yeah, very it's just the fact that they <laughs> seem to accept that it's the basic law of supply and demand yeah. somehow doesn't apply to housing simply right. because if you build more houses you may not resolve the issue immediately I have argument, that just shows though. the extent yeah. of the mess we're in i have another argument that actually isn't even to do with prices i mean i think that is the most compelling one but it's just a terrible system it just wastes everyone's time it's completely capricious shouldn't have kind of it should just be kind of code based or loan based or whatever and away you go it shouldn't be like every single development needs to be signed off by an individual bureaucrat it's just a recipe for inconsistency and kind of slowness well i mean and, and not to, to you know i, I realize i'm saying this in 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 the heart of the center for policy studies of course and um, led to that great free market revolution of the 70s and 80s yeah, um, yeah. but i have argued previously that the best decade for tory economic policy making of the 20th century um, was the 1930s, where basically we had an entirely free market system for house building. Um, and under the uh, stewardship of Stanley Baldwin et al., 
we managed to build 300, 400,000 years. With more. a much smaller population as well. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah, with a much smaller population and with um, much lower sort of interest rates than one would expect, so about 3 and 4%. But also because the uh, government retained the confidence of the market because it had a balanced budget. So, um, Rishi Sinek, if you could if you could embody Stanley Baldwin in any way, you know, please please yeah. do so. <laughs> okay, more Baldwin. Okay. Yeah. So, guys, we are drawing to the end of... Um, it's been a very varied and... Uh, both varied and in-depth, which is what we aim for on the podcast. Um, we're going to try and puncture what has been quite a gloomy year, let's be honest, uh, with our reasons to be cheerful for 2023. Um, Alice, would you like to kick us off? Well, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to think of things to feel cheerful about. But one thing I think we can all look forward to next year will be the coronation of King Charles III. I think it will be a wonderful moment of pomp and pageantry. Um I think it will be quite a contrast to the Queen's own coronation. She was young and beautiful and it was just after the war and it was this kind of moment of renewal for Britain. I think the contrast will be interesting. But I'm hoping it will be something that everyone in the country can kind of rally around, much as they did um, uh, for the funeral of Her Majesty. And I think it should be a moment of hope and and, um, rebirth. And lots of lovely bunting, which mm. I think we excel at as a nation. Yeah. Oh, Street parties. than coronation chicken. I love coronation chicken. I love no, coronation chicken. I'm a huge chicken. fan. I think yeah. that's one of your worst takes. So, <laughs> uh, in your, so, performance review coming up. Uh, Annabelle, reasons to be cheerful 2023? I, I think it's that we won't be talking about COVID anymore. Mm. Um, yeah. And I know that we haven't for some time and We've it's been, been overtaken it by so far, events. So, yeah. But let's not forget that in it was only in January that the legal obligation to wear face masks was lifted. And in February that the legal obligation to self-isolate if you tested positive for COVID was lifted. So it's still very recent, even though in the intervening period we've had war return to Europe and four chancellors and three prime ministers and a new monarch. Um, but that was the story for two years of yeah. all of our lives. It feels like some and weird fever dream. Though, yes, which, but I think that's good. We're, we're moving We're moving past it. Um, it's, it's kind of horrifying and fascinating to see China still going through it, still trying to yeah. sticking to the zero COVID nightmare. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well. It's also fascinating just looking back on it. I think, was it the day when all the last legal restrictions went? Was that February 22nd, the 23rd? Of course, immediately then followed by... Putin's invasion um, of Ukraine. So we very much shifted from um, one thing that had been dominating our lives for, for two years to something else that has been overhanging um, all the rest of the year in, in one way or another. So I think that that's a sort of fascinating historical axis on which mm-hmm. 2022 has, has turned, as, as miserable as both were. And then yeah. that sort of prompted debate around how governments cope and run the country effectively when we're in perma-crisis. Didn't that become kind of one of the new terms, perma-crisis, yeah. maybe introduced in Poly-crisis as well. Or... I tried to push omni-crisis, yeah, yeah I'm, and I explained it to the omni-crisis, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of crises, well, your, your reasons to be cheerful, I, I'm fascinated by this one. Go on. Um, my reason to be cheerful um, is global warming. Um, so, having sort of staggered here through the, the ice and snow, um, I'm... I'm I celebrated early in the summer when I think our temperatures reached a high of uh, 40 degrees. Um, and in my efforts to eventually be employed by um, the English sparkling wine industry as, as they're basically sort of hired shill, um, I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, for global warming and making Britain a, a, a warmer country. Um, but also because actually we often don't talk about the good that we're doing on a global basis to actually mitigate the effects of global warming. You know, I knew deaths, there was a real point in that. Yeah, so the, the deaths due to sort of climate-related um, conditions, whether that's extreme weather and the like, um, have fallen um, by about 99% over the last century. Deaths from climate-based diseases um, have fallen precipitously um, in the last 30 or so years. And we've actually, I think in recent decades, reclaimed more land from the sea um, than has been lost to rising sea levels on a global basis. So um, I'm, I'm a great um, exponent of lukewarmism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I see members of my generation um, protesting or appearing on television claiming that they can't get any sleep or they're not going to have any children and the like because of their fears about you know, the temperatures running by, rise by one or two um, centigrade over the coming decades and what, growth falling by about 4% cumulatively according to the most latest reports. Um, I think actually we should say that if, you know, I'm no climate change diet, but if climate change is going to happen, our folks should be adapting to it and seeing 
any opportunities, if, if there are any. Um, and of course, the greatest opportunity is for the English sparkling wine industry. Um, and right. I'm sure my number is publicly available if anybody wants to get in contact with no, me. None of that French, Mark. No, <laughs> absolutely. Right. Uh, that brings me to my own reason to be cheerful. Uh, this is going to be a slightly shameless plug for my um, last column, which was about the new chatbot from OpenAI called ChatGPT. Now, I think there's been a lot of, like anything, whenever there's a news item, there's loads of people who get excited about it, and then there's a genre of columnists who go, ah, 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 actually, it's rubbish. Don't, you know, don't uh, get too excited, everybody. But I actually think this is pretty damn cool. I mean, it does, yeah, there's a lot of, um, for, if you haven't, um, if you're listening and you don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically a kind of extremely sophisticated answering service you can ask it anything and it will reply in fairly coherent prose you know it's not going to be f scott fitzgerald but it's pretty it's pretty human-like but it's not just that i mean a lot of people are kind of tooling around with it having fun asking it to write seinfeld episodes about their mates or you know whatever which it can do quite well um but it's more the kind of technical stuff it can do uh, i'm not a great computer nerd i don't know this stuff but i've seen enough people who are saying wow this thing can do lots of cool coding stuff at the drop of a hat you know stuff that people are employed to do and it can do it in a second so obviously that's concerning if you are in a low-level coding job but it also implies that it's going to be enormously productivity enhancing it's going to save what might be quite grunt worky jobs or tasks for people in other jobs and give people more time to do other big picture stuff um, and bear in mind too that this is just one iteration from one company you know google's got its own um apparently even more powerful one called Lambda, which they're a bit scared of releasing because they think if it gives people wrong information, you know, they could be on um, on a bit of a hiding to nothing. But yeah, I think a lot of the rhetoric and kind of arguments about AI and bots and all that are dystopian. They're a generation whose main image of robotry is the Terminator films. Um, and I, I just look at it and I think that it's a reminder that we live in an age of miracles and that this thing this machine can do extraordinary things almost instantly so yeah should, that's my reason to be chief i think we should uh, worry about it making us redundant though we did ask it to write a defense of capitalism for capex yes that's true um so i think it's going to mechanize our job but, eventually but that's that's why i'm not that worried because if you've read that piece i shouldn't say this about our own content but it's <laughs> fucking boring um, well my french i was um, i was worrying for a second actually you were, you were lapsing into being a member of the anti-growth coalition yes. you're opposing this innovation yeah <laughs> It is good, but I think also there's this thing about how it'll like be the end of the essay or something. It's like, just ask a better essay question. If your question is so basic that an AI can mm. do it, I think you need to really think the way you're assessing people. I don't think that that means that the, the bot spells the end of everything. Um, but again, that's the way everything's dressed up these days. New tech emerges. Is it going to destroy everything or is it amazing? Well, maybe neither. You know. Anyway. Um, guys, that is uh, a salutary note on which to end what has been a an enormously fascinating, slightly gloomy uh, year, both here on CapEx and in the, in the wider world. Uh, thank you all, as ever, for listening at home. It's been a great year for the podcast. We've had some great guests. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please do share with your friends. Leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on. And as I always say, if you don't like the podcast, then just keep quiet. Uh, have a great uh, Christmas and a very happy new year.